I should have been scared to death, but my original business plan had me not making anything for three years. Hello and welcome to episode 94 of the Smart Agents Podcast. My name is Michael Walter and I'll be your host. In today's episode, we are joined by a true pioneer in her field. Named top woman land broker in the U.S. by Realtors Land Institute in 2021, Nancy Surik has found huge success in a male-dominated field over the last two decades. Throughout our conversation, Nancy shares how she broke into the industry after a 13-year career outside of real estate and how she's been able to achieve such great success. Now, before we get on to the day's featured interview, make sure to subscribe to the Smart Agents Podcast. You can find the show on all major podcasting platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and now Amazon Music. Also, if you or someone else on your team has an awesome story or tips to share with our community, send us a message at feedback at smartagents.com. We're always on the lookout for new stories to share. All right, let's get on to the day's featured interview with Nancy. I highly recommend checking out her podcast, She's Wild, where she speaks with fellow female leaders to inspire and motivate more women to pursue careers such as hers. I've added a link in the episode description. Just kind of getting started out, I'd love for you to introduce yourself a little bit to us and kind of your background in the real estate profession. Sure. My name is Nancy Sarak, and I am the managing broker and the senior land advisor for the Land Advisors Organization in the Tampa Bay region of Florida. Uh, I've been a land broker for almost 20 years here on the West Coast of Florida and do all types of land uh, that are primarily heading towards some phase of development. It could be pre-development, it could be immediate development, uh, but that's my business background. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's been great. I absolutely love what I do and love working with landowners. Right. So what got you, uh, you know, wanting to go that route and, and into more of this, uh, this type of real estate? So I have to always uh, give credit to my dad uh, on this, on these types of questions. Uh, when I was a teenager, he actually strongly encouraged me to go into the commercial real estate arena. And uh, he was invested in a, a self-storage deal, development deal. He lost all of his money. Uh, it was an investment that he made and it scared the crap out of me. But he kept telling me, even though he had a really pretty negative experience, that he thought I would be really good in the space. And you know, like most teenagers, I just kind of waved him off and said, you know, I'm, what do you know? And um, look, you didn't really know as much as you thought you knew because you lost all your money. Uh, but so I went to college, got a couple of degrees. And when I graduated from the University of Florida to my master's degree, uh, my dad basically said again, you know, you should get your real estate license. You're sitting in the state of Florida. Uh, and, um, you know, I brushed him off again. And it took me about 13 years of working in corporate America in various roles that I sort of kind of came back and said, hey, dad, you know, I've been thinking a lot about what I want to do next in my career. And I think I'm going to get my real estate license. And um, he's like, I knew, I knew it. Uh, but really, it, it came through for me. I was a young mom and I had managed to create a career for myself in business development and outside sales that was phenomenal. And I had all these great like tools and resources available to me at a company car. I had an expense account. I had managed to get the, the company I worked with at the time to reduce my uh, in-person hours to like 30 hours a week. So from a young uh, working mom perspective, I had everything. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't have this... Um, strong feeling of where I thought I was where I was meant to be. And I thought I can make a lot more money. And yep. so I sat down with my husband and said, Hey, I think I want to 
you know, go into brokerage and what do you think? And he's like, well, let's put together a business plan or you put together a business plan. So we sat down for, for months and, together uh, and I sort of outlined what I thought I wanted to do. I interviewed a ton of real estate brokers uh, in the Tampa Bay region. Everybody wanted me to go into office brokerage. And I was like, that's not it. You know, I'm too much of a, I like to wear jeans as much as possible. <laughs> I like being out, being out in the field. I love the development side of the business. Um, so I kept saying, no, I think I'm going to be in land. And, um, you know, I looked around and I was like, there are so few women in land. Maybe I can do that and I'll be different. I didn't realize that that being different meant it was going to be a lot harder. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, that's how I got started as I got my license and started focusing on land and never looked back. Right. So, you know, one of the things I think, you know, especially in the, in the, the land and the commercial real estate realm is it's not, um, those commission checks are a little bit few, you know, they're a little bit far between. It's not, uh, those deals aren't always kind of rolling in. So what was that like to, to jump into that? Uh, really scary, actually. And I'm really glad that you asked that question because I, especially when the market is the way it is right now in Florida, a lot of uh, land, or I'm sorry, a lot of agents want to jump into the land space. It looks easy from the outside. It's not. Um, it's in hot demand right now. And so they think, oh, well, I'm going to go where the demand is. It is a substantial waiting game. Uh, when I first got in, I interviewed think of 10 or 12 different brokers and said, you know, what's your sales cycle like? And and I should have been scared to death, right? <laughs> yeah, I was scared. But my original business plan had me not making anything for three years. Yeah. And um, I was really, really fortunate that I the first deal I got involved with, I turned it around from my first meeting to closing in six months. But that is not typical. And even in my current uh, business model. A uh, land deal uh, normally takes between 12 and, and 36 months to close from the first meeting with a landowner or a buyer. Uh, right now, the market is such that it could be as fast as about 90 days and as long as about 24 months. Uh, so it, it kind of ebbs and flows with what's happening in the market overall. But I've had, I had to really prepare financially to take that huge jump. And I could not have done it, honestly, without having a secondary source of income, without my husband's income. You know, we scaled back on everything. I, um, you know, basically stopped spending a ton of discretionary money and said, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just continue to reinvest in myself, and and really, even the first deal I did, I put it right back into my business, um, and I said, okay, I just bought myself more time, uh, and a lot of people who who will come to me and say, I think I want to be in land brokerage. I'm like, okay, well, do you have 18 months of your salary saved? Because if you don't, you could potentially get yourself into trouble. Yeah, yeah, but it's very scary. Yeah, and I think that's like the one of the biggest differences is having that safety net, you know, for a long period of time and, and to really kind of put together, like you said, you know, you really worked on this business plan and really flesh things out before you get going. Yeah, I, I definitely did. And I do it every year still, you know, and even just had this conversation with my husband this week um, where he said, you know, you're, you're always so paranoid that you're not going to do well. He's like, you do so well. And I'm like, yeah, if I don't have that hunger in my belly, then I'm going to get lazy <laughs> and I won't make any money. 
Um, but yeah, just being really thoughtful as to where the client's going to come from, how long it's going to take to do deals and being very aware of that. But knowing that, you know, when I close a deal, one deal in the land business could be like 10 homes, you know, in the residential space, but I might only have three of those if I'm lucky in a year, you know? And so I've had years where I've done speaking engagements and it's like the end of September. And I'm like, yeah, I haven't made anything this year yet. And I'm freaking out, but it just happens to be that in that particular year, every single deal was going to close in the fourth quarter. You know, right. so I have to constantly have a hamster wheel going and I'm constantly throwing deals out and just trying to make sure that I've got something planned and, and being very aware of that. Right. And, and I, like what you said, you know, with your first deal, you, you're buying yourself more time. And I think that's a lot, you know, I think when people are starting out in, in any realm of the real estate business, that those first several deals, it really is buying yourself time to get things really kind of churning. Yep. Yep. Every deal. And I, you know, my kids have watched us too, where, you know, I'll celebrate a really massive deal that I've worked on for years and I'll get really excited. And I'm like, you know, we'll have this great dinner. And they're like, okay, can we do this? And I'm like, no, no, no. I live off of last year's results always. And I've done that since the very beginning. And so for me, like, it doesn't really matter how great the year is that I'm having because I'm living off of last year in terms of how much money am I willing to spend on myself and in my personal life. Right. How have you been able to stay disciplined with that? Because I think that can be really difficult. You know, I've been doing it for so long that it just, it comes rather natural now um, that I'm always like, okay, is, is the market going to shift? What's going to happen? Because that's the other thing in land transactions, because the time of the sale is so long, uh, and I'll define that a little bit better. So due diligence is common in, in residential uh, real estate. Due diligence for me can be 12 months, 18 months long. There's a lot of things that can go wrong right. when you give somebody that much time. The market can change, wars break out, um, demand shifts, uh, interest rates rise, like we're seeing right, right. now, or, you know, yeah, global pandemics. recessions, yeah. <laughs> recessions start, global pandemics happen. Um, you know, so there's a lot of things that can affect a deal that will cause mm-hmm. it to drop. Yeah. Uh, and, and, um, you know, you have to be ready for that. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, it's really, really intense. So discipline is very, very key because you just never know what's going to happen. Right. And, you know, I think, the discipline also is just, it's kind of when things are extended for as long as they are, you've got multiple deals. And so being able to mm-hmm. stay disciplined and keep track of everything with the individual deals over that long period of time, as things get added to it or close, I think is super important as well. Yeah. Communication is is really high up there in terms of um, what I would consider my one of my number one skill sets is being able to ask difficult questions and uh, communication and, and really staying on top of things, like very being very process oriented and knowing where a deal is at every single stage, what's happening, and making sure that buyers are performing the way they're supposed to. So there are no big surprises. Right. When, you know, when you're doing these land deals, what are some of those steps that, you know, you talked about the due diligence and everything that kind of goes along with it. So like really kind of the steps from the beginning to the end process of these land deals. So it's a lot, um, a Mm -hmm. lot of different steps. 
Uh, and it really depends. My steps depend on which side of the deal I'm working on, mm-hmm. where my fiduciary relationship lies. So if I'm working with a buyer, they, there is a series of steps. If I'm working with a seller, I'm doing similar steps, but they might be a little bit of a different different things kind of come and go. Uh, but primarily once, if I'm working with a, a landowner and we're listing a property, uh, I'm looking at you know, what is their property? What's the highest and best use? What's the zoning? What are What's it entitled for? And either I'm having the landowner educate me or I'm, or I'm educating the landowner. Um, and quite frequently, it's the latter. I'm educating the landowner as to what they own, uh, what could go there from a development perspective, what sort of valuations that are happening in the marketplace. So that's a big, big chunk of the front end of the work. And then from that, discussion once a listing agreement is is signed, I'm then strategizing on how I'm going to take it to the marketplace. And I'm using a lot of the same things. You know, what what is the property zone? What can be built there? What's in demand in the overall community? What might something ultimately what could be built on that particular property? And then I'm strategizing to, well, who's doing that and understanding what the buyers are that are seeking that sort of particular end product. And then I'm pitching them. So I pitch them, I market, you know, making tons and tons of phone calls, unlike uh, other types of real estate. It's not just like throwing a sign up on a property and putting an ad on the internet. Like I literally have to phone everyone. I have to dial for dollars and I'm pitching the property and pitching like why somebody should be paying attention to it. Now I have all those other bases covered. You know, I have signs. I'm on, you know, a bunch of different platforms for advertising. Um but I'm really talking about trying to gain the interest. And then once offers start to trickle in, depending on how how much in demand the property is, um, it could be just a matter of responding to the offers as they come in and educating my seller as to what they, you know, whether or not it's legitimate or they should be paying attention to it or countering it or accepting it. Um, or if it's super, super competitive, you know, we might have a different strategy of doing a call for best and final offers. And then managing that whole process, which is a whole another um, box of uh, things that sometimes I get to do that are that's a lot of fun. Uh, and then once we settle on a buyer, we enter uh, purchase and sale agreement. And again, unlike the residential space, that you know you use a like a state contract. Uh, land contracts are usually uh, individually created for that particular transaction. They can run anywhere from about probably 15 to 60 pages of legal contractual language. It's a lot uh, that I have to read. And I'm not an attorney, but I have to <laughs> still read it. Um, and quite frankly, I'm like telling the attorneys, like, pay particular attention to these sections um, just because of my, you know, my knowledge and my experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a purchase and sale agreement can take about 30 to 45 days to negotiate. So you get your offer, you select your buyer, and then it's another 30 or 45 days till you're under contract. Um, go under contract, and then the fun happens. That's when the work really begins. That's when due diligence happens for the right. buyer. So they're ordering, you know, their studies, their surveys, their environmental mm-hmm. assessments. Um, looking at the overall market, their marketing studies, they might be taking it through some preliminary entitlement work, whether that may be rezoning or or something like that, rezoning. Um, they might be filing for permits. So it just really, each deal is so unique that it just really depends. But once a buyer, uh, especially a developer, 
has uh, typically their permits for construction, then they would be looking at their final funding. Uh, And I don't get involved so much in the funding element, um, but it does come up on a number of my deals. And I might be talking with some equity groups and helping them better understand the overall marketplace. And then from funding, we go into closing and I get to celebrate with a commission or a success fee as we like to call it. Um, But then my work doesn't really stop there. I monitor like early development, not for either party, but it's really where I can gain my marketing um, tidbits. That's where I kind of talk about the project and my involvement in the project. Because typically up until a deal closes, I try to keep it as close and as quiet uh, as possible. You know, I don't want um, folks to come and try to blow up my deal. So I try really, really hard to like not say a lot publicly as much as possible. And then I can you know, go from there. Once I've been paid, then I'll, you know, if I'm not under a confidentiality agreement, I'll tell whoever will listen, you know, about whatever it right. is that we did. Right. There's and a lot I of think steps. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you're talking about trying to keep things, you know, really kind of tight lipped until the closing, until everything's really done. Um, I'd imagine that when it comes to the actual marketing for, uh, you know, land brokers, people like yourself, it's not so much that, you know, the marketing is very different in the way it's more that kind of almost like word of mouth, I guess, like your success and the the way that you've been able to work with these individuals, like your, their success and seeing who is handling those deals. Is that how you really kind of gain new deals or how do you really kind of market yourself to start getting these new um, landowners? So the, well, there's a bunch of different ways. Um, word of mouth is big. Um mm-hmm. I have a piece of paper that from years and years ago that I saved over the years where it's like kind of a bullseye, right? Mm-hmm. A, the center of the eye or your primary clients, B, are the people who can most influence them and C is like kind of everybody else, right? Um, so for a lot of the landowners, either I'm going straight to the bullseye and I'm marketing directly to them and telling them my story and my success or I'm spending a lot of time in the B ring so that you know the tax accountant or the um, the family's attorney, or uh, other folks who are of a professional nature could that could influence that person, and they know who I am. Um, and I get a decent amount of business from that. And then typically, once I'm in an inner circle um, with professionals, they tend to throw my name out on other deals as well. Um, but it takes it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to cultivate those relationships. So I do a little bit of everything. I do a decent amount of like PR uh, and talk to media uh, when I get asked to. And and that's really scary for me. Like, I don't really like to do it. I don't like to see myself on video. I don't like to hear myself, uh, but I recognize how important it is overall to just my business. Right. Absolutely. It's all that kind of authority building and uh, yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I do want to kind of switch gears a little bit and uh, because I'm really interested in, you know, the podcast you have yourself and really, you know, this passion for helping young professional women, uh, you know, kind of get started. Yeah. So thank you for for asking me about that. So I grew up in a family mostly of girls. So there were five children. I have one brother. Um, I was raised... Uh, My dad raised us all girls to be just like super strong and independent and basically told us like we could do anything we set our mind to. 
as long as we were willing to work hard. And so that was really my foundation. And then I got out into real world uh, and then I got into the land brokerage industry and I'm like, oh, crap, I'm like the only woman in the room. Like, what have I done? I, and I do lean into that. It is a differentiator for me, uh, but it is still, there are hurdles there that other people just don't have. And when I say other people, I mean men. And it, it I understand when people say things like, uh, systemic issues because you don't even you don't even realize it you know like I I tell the I tell the stories about you know I don't get invited on hunting trips in my market yet every um, major home builder land act guy is is going to a hunting trip on the weekend with the engineers and the other male land brokers well I don't get invited on that and that doesn't mean that I'm not really damn good at what I do. But I don't even, it's not even a thought. So I have to figure out a way to kind of get in front of all those people in a different way and build really sustainable relationships. Um, so after years and years of just saying like, hey, this isn't fair, um, not that it got in the way of my success because it never, ever did, but it was frustrating for me to be like, I can't, I can't do that. I'm not allowed or it's not okay or whatever. Um, I finally said, you know what? I'm going to try to do what I can to raise other women in the business. There's more and more of us. And if I can do that, then at least I'll know I did my, my little part of helping other people be successful. And um, prior to COVID, for about three years, I was the chairperson for the Women's Leadership Initiative for the Urban Land Institute on the West Coast of Florida in the Tampa Bay region, and did a lot of programming for women engineering uh, professionals and architects and contractors and developers and other land brokers and really fell into a strong passion for wanting to see uh, other women and other young people really succeed in the business. Um, so I've been doing that for years. It's just who I am. It's something I believe very, very strongly in. And then when COVID hit, um, I felt like all of that programming just kind of stopped and I have seen all the headlines with women, you know, went back into like teaching their kids if they had children at home or trying to balance like home family life if they were more in the home environment. Um, and so after, you know, two years of just seeing that, I was like, okay, enough already. Like I've got to create a podcast that I can talk to other professional women across North America and have them show, share their career stories. Um, so I started thinking about it. I had a couple of friends that you know were cheering me on and they were like, you should so do this. Um, but it really became a function of me trying to help other women connect in the business. And also I'm a huge podcast consumer and um, I listened to tons of audiobooks and I was like, oh, I started looking, I was running out of content. So I started looking for uh, women in my space, women developers, women in land, and I couldn't find it. And so finally I was like, you know what? Everybody keeps telling me I should do a podcast. I'm looking for this content. Maybe this is the content. Uh, because at first I thought, oh, well, I'll just do a podcast on being a land broker because that seemed to make sense from a business perspective. But then I was like, no, no, no. I'm going to seek out women across North America that are in my business that I admire and I'm going to interview them. And that's, that's how the podcast started. It's called She's Wild. Uh, and it's all about women and land and development. And it's, it's been really, really cool. Right. Well, I don't want to give away, you know, too many of, you know, the things that people can, uh, you know, gain from your podcast, but one of the things that, you know, especially with your, your story also, uh, that I, you know, 
that's interested me here is what, you know, when it comes time for that career change, or, you know, like you said that you, there was always that something, you know, else that you were looking for. What is it, you know, that can help, you know, push people towards actually making that jump, but then also giving them the confidence to do so? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, Cause I've never, I work on confidence as kind of like a regular thing and self-motivation. And I get that question sometimes when they're like, well, what keeps you motivated? I'm like, I don't know. It's just who I am. But that's not really a truthful answer. It's like, I work on it every single day. Uh, and so it's like people who, you know, are world-class athletes, they work on their their sport or their athleticism every day. And so I do that just on my mindset every single day, you know, like who, who am I going after today? What's going to be the win? And before I go to bed at night, I'm like, okay, what was my win today? What worked for me? Um, So for me, you know, when you talk about people changing in their careers, for me, it was just paying attention to that. I didn't feel like I had reached it yet. I wasn't at the top. I was close I was happy. I wasn't unhappy, but I just had this pull, this crazy internal pull to do something else. Uh, and luckily, I was in a situation where I could say, like, what is it? And do a lot of homework. And I kept going back to my childhood, you know, like, oh, I was the little girl playing in the dirt. I was the one building, you know, the house with my Barbie. Like, Barbie was the developer in my world or the contractor. And started to really string together like all the things I'd been told, you know, over the course of my life or the things I was super attracted to and recognized that, yeah, there was something else out there. And, you know, land brokerage seemed to make perfect sense for me. Uh, but I had to pay a lot of attention to what was happening in my career and why was I feeling like I wasn't there. And, you know, was it money? And, you know, for me, it was a little bit, but that wasn't it. Mm-hmm. It certainly wasn't flexibility, although that was helpful because um, I'd already gotten that. Um, but I think it was just this desire to want to do something different and then being willing to take a gamble on myself. Yeah, absolutely. I think once that, you know, that kind of um, that desire to just kind of want to change, like a change of scenery almost. And yeah. I think it, I think it's really important to explore those options, no matter what career path you're on or what industry you're in is when you kind of have that, you know, you know, everybody's going to go through those kind of slumps, but if it's prolonged and you always have that kind of nagging, I think it's important to really kind of explore what other options are out there for you. Yeah, I think too, because I've had um, good friends do things or family members and they'll say, you know, how did you know when it was time? And I said, you know, pay particular attention to how you feel Sunday night after 730. If you are dreading, and I mean dreading, like you have anxiety riddled, like just uncomfortable feelings internally, like you feel it, that weight of, oh my God, I have to work tomorrow, (laughs) or this is going to happen this week. Um, And I'm not talking about when you're pursuing some big, like huge new project, right? Because that's normal anyway. I'm talking about it is consistent. It is there every Sunday. You cannot shake it pay attention to that. It's your body is telling you something's not okay. Um, And then also look at, uh, for me, um, really paying attention to the conversations I had with my kids. They were young when I got into brokerage. They were young, a little bit older when I started 
the land advisor's uh, location here in the Tampa Bay region. Um, but really the conversations I was having with them and the advice I was giving them was advice that I needed to give myself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. You bet. I appreciate you having me. I want to thank Nancy for taking the time to speak with us today and remember to check out her podcast, She's Wild. I've dropped a link in the episode description. So once again, if you think you or someone else on your team has an awesome story or tip to share with our community, send us a message at feedback at smartagents.com. Well, that wraps things up for this episode, but remember, follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts and make sure to subscribe to the Smart Agents YouTube channel. Again, I'm Michael Walter, and we'll see you on the next episode.